for that song. That's my wife, if you didn't know. Yeah, it's good. Appreciate her singing today. It was less than a hundred years since the great prosperity of Israel during King Solomon's reign when the passage we just read. The, the greatest empire that has ever reigned or been successful was during King Solomon's time. And less than a hundred years later, the situation in Israel was desperate. And that's what a period of wicked kings will do to a once prosperous nation. If you read through the history of Israel, the ten northern tribes, um, and you read through all of the kings that they ever had after Solomon, guess how many of them were righteous kings? How many of you guessed zero? You got it right. None of them. They never had a king who wanted to follow God. And if the leader doesn't want to follow God, the nation will not follow God. Um, It had not rained in Israel for three and a half years. Right? Hadn't rained in Israel for three and a half years. That's quite a drought. In fact, it was a major drought. There was a major famine going on. Things were desperate. But the prophet Elijah was not desperate. Um, He was certainly in the minority, facing Israel's most wicked king, facing 450 false prophets of Baal and 400 other false prophets of the groves. He believed that the power of God was still available. And the question is, really, for the message today, do we live like the power of God is still available today? Have you ever heard somebody say, uh, times have changed? Times have changed. I mean, you can't just plainly tell the truth anymore in our society. You have to be subtle. You have to market the message of God. You have to be politically correct. You don't want to offend anyone. Times have changed. And really, I hear this quite often. You can't have the same expectations for things like you used to. Pastor, you don't understand. You can't have the same expectations for a marriage like you could 50 years ago. Things have changed. Times have changed. You can't expect husbands or wives or teens to live the right way today. In fact, you can't expect teenagers to live without an array of video or whatever coming out of their body at any appointed time. Just can't expect that to happen. And and so you say, well, times have changed. But here's the interesting thing. God hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Elijah stood on top of that mountain with all the times of changed people, and he cut out all the sensitivity talk. He did away with the tolerance issue. Look again at verse 21. It could not be any more plain. Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. That's pretty plain, isn't it? If God is God, why would you not follow him? And if God isn't God, why in the world are we here? And so it's such a brilliant question because it's the same question for God's people today in 2012. If God is still God, why are we living like he's not? Why do we live like 
He's just a figment of our imagination many times. The people could not have disliked him anymore in what he said. Look what it said. And the people answered him not a word. They pouted. They puffed up. They said nothing in response. I don't know if you have anybody at your house that when they hear something they don't like, they just clam up. Anybody have somebody like that at your house? Oh, not very many hands. Not very many brave people here today. How many of you have a child or a teenager who, who clams up when you give them instructions? Yes, yes. God bless you that have teens. See, I see those hands out there today. Um, but, but here these people were, they couldn't even respond. They were so angry. And, and here's why, because they wanted it both ways. They wanted to call themselves the people of God, but live like the people of Baal. They wanted everything, the best of both worlds, and the altar was broken down. As we go through the message today in this passage, I want to see four important truths. And it starts with limiting truth. Limiting truth. We could say it another way. We don't think we need it. We don't think we need it. Think with me for a moment about these people. They were deceived by their own leaders. They were deceived by their own priests, and they were deceived by their own selves. The people living under the wicked regime of Ahab missed seeing a connection between the broken altar and the famine in the land. They didn't really understand what the broken altar had to do with the struggle they were facing. How could a broken altar make any difference on whether or not it rains? How could a broken altar have anything to do with whether or not the crops grow? Truth had been limited. Facts had been changed. And yet God was still the same. Have you ever been duped into thinking that you can live your life without God's power? It's self-deception, really. I'm pretty sure we all have from time to time. The thought crosses our mind, or maybe it doesn't even cross our mind. It's somewhere deep down in our heart. I could make it a day or two without spending time with God. Or maybe you'd say, listen, I've made it for years without a prayer life. I've been a Christian for years, and I've never read the Bible, and my life's just fine. Our family never prays together, and we don't have any problems. I've been a pastor for 18 years. I've never had a family that's coming to my office and said, Pastor, we have a problem. We pray too much together. You know, things were, were really bad in our life, and we started praying as a family, and they just got worse. Never had anybody say that. Um, but I have heard the other way. Did you know that kids sprout up faster than corn? I've, it's like my kids were one, three, and five, like two seconds ago. And now they're 11, 13, and 15. And two of them are taller than I am, which doesn't take much, but don't tell them, though. They, they go up quick, and, and you, don't, you, you can't ever go back and pray with that three-year-old again. You can't ever go back to the seven-year-old and spend more time praying and teaching them the Bible. It's gone. That time's gone. 
And sometimes we don't value that time of family altar like we should. Sometimes we don't value the things of God like we should. It's what God calls self-deception. The first person you have to trick to accomplish things in your flesh is yourself. First one you have to trick. See if you can understand the difficult language Jesus used in John 15. All right, this is going to blow your mind. See if you understand this. Without me, you can do nothing. Isn't that tough? Without me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. Jesus said it. It's in red letters. Without me, you can do nothing. Romans 8 says it another way. Let's see if you get this one. This is another mind number. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Wow. Romans 8, 8. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It is impossible for you to please God without the altar in your life. It's impossible. God said it. You say, but Pastor, wait, hold on. I go to church. I want a Bible. We don't worry too much about prayer. We just kind of do whatever we do. And things are great for us. I'm sure they are. I'm sure the devil is frightened by you. I'm sure that the world just winces when you come around. See, we have a Christianity today that has merged, just like it did in 1 Kings 18, where we're Christians in name only. We live like the world completely all through the week, but we come in here one hour a week and we smile and we sing and things are great and we're Christians. And then we go back out and live like the world. And what has been limited is truth. We've lost truth. I've actually had people tell me this. I don't know why you people over there at Centennial feel like you need to have more than one service every week. We only have one, and we do just fine. I've had, I can't tell you how many people I've had say that over the years. Why is it that you feel like, that? sometimes I hear you Baptists. Why is it that you Baptists have to have church three times a week? Well, I went back to the back of the book of Acts. They had church every day. You know why? Because they knew that they had to be as close to the altar as possible. They had to have spiritual food to survive. You are in a battle with your flesh, and you need spiritual food. Now, God did not say, thou shalt go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, or thou art evil, right? I understand life happens. You have jobs, and you have vacations, and things are going on. But listen to me. If we're going to glorify God in our lives, we have to be close to the altar, We have to be close to the Holy Spirit. We can't limit that truth in our lives. The people in Acts knew how much they needed the power and the presence of God. And it could be that you don't think you need God's power. Truth has been limited in your life. Well, God says you are wrong. You do need His power. Without Him, you can do absolutely nothing. It's so limiting truth. But then we see losing thirst. Losing thirst. And the truth we want to get here is this. We don't really 
want it. We don't really want it. Why is it we don't have the power of God? Not only because we don't think we need it, but many times it's because we don't really want it. We know it's there, but we don't really want it. Do you know there were people in Israel who walked by the broken altar every day on their way to the market? They walked by the broken altar of God to go to the high place to worship Baal. They were aware that the altar was broken. As I drove in this, this morning, I saw an interesting thing. Um, I pulled around, and I got out of my truck, and, and uh, had just gotten out. And I looked down, and uh, there is a speed limit sign on our uh, sidewalk right out here. And I got to thinking about it. That speed limit sign has been there for three and a half years since we put the back parking lot in and they made us add an extra lane to the road. I have gotten out of my truck for three and a half years in the same place and failed to ever even think about a speed limit sign that's lying on our sidewalk. And apparently, everybody else has failed to think about it too. Because it's still on the sidewalk. Now, it's been there, but we get used to it. You know, the things at your house that need fixed, how many of you ladies who are wives will attest to this, that sometimes your husband gets used to things being broken? Or he gets used to... You don't have to raise your hands. I'm not trying to get you into a war today. Um, Maybe he gets used to the garage being messy, or he gets used to a project not being done Or he gets used to certain things. And it goes the other way too. Ladies, I could pick on you at this moment, but I I choose not to today. Um, We get used to things in our lives because we lose thirst. And many people were aware that the altar of the Lord was broken down, but no one had stepped up to repair it. They all thought that it was somebody else's job. Or maybe they thought that until a feeling of desire comes to fix the altar, I'm not going to fix it. And that's the way a lot of people think. Until I feel like cleaning the garage, I won't do it. Until I feel like fixing this or that, I won't do it. And we think, boy, I have to be thirsty for it. Actually, it's the other way around. God says this in Proverbs 16, verse 3. Commit thy way unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. Commit thy way unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. Go ahead and do what you know is right to do, and God will give you the desire to do that. If, if the altar's broken, you don't have to go to God and say, Hey, God, should I fix your altar? You don't need to know God's will on that. You already know what it is. Fix the altar. If there is something in your life between you and God, you don't have to ask for direction on it. God wants you to fix the altar. And a lot of times we get messed up in our minds with this. Fix the altar and you'll want to use it more. Say, Pastor, that altar's been broken in my life for so long that another week's not going to hurt it. And you've lost your thirst. Pastor, listen, I, I haven't really had a walk with God for two years. And I don't think another week's going to hurt it. Do you know that every week that you don't walk with God, 
you're destroying the future of your life. You're destroying the present of your life. Ask God to make you thirsty. I wonder what would happen if some of the other things in your life that you might bow down to were broken. How would you respond if your refrigerator were broken? Oh, we can wait a few days on that. Ah, we'll get one some other time, maybe in a couple weeks. How would you respond today if your air conditioner were broken? Right? It's going to be 102 degrees or something like that. How would you respond? You'd be calling the repairman immediately. Oh, don't worry about it. December will come quick. Right? But that's the way we get in our spiritual life. God, I know this is broken, but I can wait a while. It's no big deal. How would you respond if your cell phone were broken? The God of the 21st century, the cell phone. How would you respond if your cell phone were broken? (laughs) That could be one response, right? Some people, boy, I'd be so happy to get rid of that thing. But you know, things can become an altar in our lives, a false altar, so easily. What if your computer was broken? What if your game console were broken? What, what if your television, God forbid, were broken? What would you do? And what would happen in your life? You know, I can just imagine that a big percentage of Christian people, if their television were broken, they would find another way to get one within two to three days. That would be my guess. The majority, the largest percentage of Christians would find a way to get a replacement within a few days. But when it comes to the personal or family or church altar that is broken in our lives, we don't have the same thirst. We don't have the same urge. We don't really want the power of God. Sometimes we live in idolatry. That's what that tells us. We're living in idolatry. Say, what's idolatry? Idolatry is when we have placed anything above our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's idolatry. Anything that's placed in our relationship above Jesus Christ. And so there's thirst that's missing. But then lacking trust. Lacking trust. If you go back to the passage, I want to walk you through this. Sometimes we just don't believe it can happen. Say, God... just don't really believe it can happen. We lack trust. We lack faith. We lack a belief in God Almighty. When Elijah called them out, um, they wouldn't even answer. But look in verse number 24. Remember what he told them? He said, the God that answers by fire, let him be God. The God that answers by fire, let him be God. And most of the people who are there are like, well, okay, like that'll ever happen. Go for it, Elijah. Elijah says, okay, guys, you go first. It's 450 of you. So they put the bullock on the altar, and they start crying out to Baal. Verse 26, we read that they were leaping on the altar. They're jumping up and down on the altar. Verse number 27, Elijah begins to give them a, a little bit of a ribbing. He mocks them. Hey, cry louder. 
Maybe God's busy. Maybe God's asleep. Not sure what's going on with your God. Maybe you could cry just a little bit louder. Verse 28, it got serious. And they began to cut themselves. By the way, cutting yourself is always associated with satanic religion. Never with the one true God. God never, in his word, asks his people to hurt themselves physically. It doesn't happen. And, uh, so that's just a principle to remember. But you get down to verse number 30, and we find that Elijah, the last verse we read, he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken. He took 12 stones, and he fixed the altar. Skip down to verse number 38, if you would. Look what it says. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. And they said, The Lord, He is the God. The Lord, He is the God. Here's what's interesting. They already knew that the Lord was God before this thing ever started. And yet, the calloused hearts of these Jewish people would not be turned back to God, to the God of the altar, until they saw signs and wonders. The Jewish people in their history were always like this. God, you show us some signs and wonders and we'll believe. And then they'd believe for about ten minutes. And then they say, God, now we need another sign and wonder. We're not sure you're there. And he'd show them another one. It crossed the Red Sea, and he'd give them manna, and he'd provide water for them, and he had a pillar of cloud and fire and quail and all these things, and yet they struggled with belief, basic trust. Sometimes we get the same way. God, you haven't done anything for me lately. God, tell you what, when you let me win the lottery, then I'll listen to you, Right? That's God's plan for your life, I'm sure. That's not asking amiss, right? God, when you give me the car I want, or the job I want, or the husband I want, or the wife I want, or the boyfriend or girlfriend, or whatever it is that I want, then I'll turn to you. And you won't turn to God until He does something big for you. And then when He does do something big for you, it lasts for about 10 minutes. Because your relationship's not right. Could I refresh your memory for just a second? The God of creation has done something immeasurably big in caring for you. He sent His Son, His only begotten Son, to die on a wooden cross for your sins. That is the biggest thing He could possibly do. And if you would set aside the pressing needs of your life... And realize your primary need. The altar can be restored. See, you may need all those other things, <coughs> but you need Jesus more. He is the primary need in your life. And the altar can't be restored until you figure out that He's all that you need. He's all that you're missing. You say, Pastor, wait just a second. What about this problem? What about this problem? What about this problem? Embrace Jesus Christ. That is the primary need. And when you embrace the primary need, you know what happens with all the pressing needs? They begin to fade away. 
But so often we look at our problem instead of our Savior. And when we look at our problem, it becomes big in our minds. It becomes a giant. And we say, well, we couldn't possibly do it. There's a giant in the way. Just like the children of Israel. Happened to them in Numbers 13 and 14. Your biggest need is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And your faith crisis that you have will be finished if you live in his purpose. Too many of God's children act like our father is dead, that he's limited, that he couldn't possibly meet our need, that our problem is too big. Listen to me. When we expect nothing big from God, it is certain that we will attempt nothing big for God. If you in your prayer life are asking for nothing big, you won't ever do anything big for God. If you're not asking for something bigger than what you can do on your own, you won't ever do anything bigger than what you can do on your own. You know, we can measure what our capability is for God by what we're asking for. God, just help me to make it through another day. Well, you've already made it through 12,742 days. Think maybe that those days you forgot to pray that prayer that still might have made it. God, help us to be able to make it through another meal and to be able to follow you today in our lives. We pray such trite prayers, prayers that are meaningless. God, be with my grandmother, help her to make it another week. Well, she's made it a few weeks on her own. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray for people. What I'm saying is this. Have you ever asked God for anything big in your life? Bigger than you? Bigger than what you can think of? Extraordinary? Outside the box? Think big when you ask for God. Elijah, did you just read the passage? He asked God to call fire down from heaven. That's asking big. Right? You say, ah, it's not a big deal. Okay, let's go out. Let's set up an altar in the parking lot. Let's melt some asphalt out there. Let's see whose faith can get fire down from heaven. Today would be a great day to do it. The asphalt may melt on its own. We could fry eggs on the parking lot. Listen to me, folks. Elijah asked for something incredibly big. You know why? Because he had faith. He had a trust factor in God. And he attempted something huge, but it's because he believed that God could do it. David fought Goliath because he believed that God would deliver him from the giant. Daniel went into the lion's den willingly because he knew that his God was able. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went in the fiery furnace and they said, O king, we don't really care if we die or not, but our God's able. And yet, Christians today were saying, Oh God, help us to make it through one more day. I love when the kids pray to hear them because they get into habits about how they pray. And when our daughter, Autumn, was about four or five, we'd tuck her in at night and we'd pray with her. And she would say, God, help us to have fun today. She'd say, Honey, the day's over. And help us to have fun tonight, and help us to have fun tomorrow. And one day we said, that may not be what God's into for you. But, but that's how we pray, isn't it? 
So many times we pray for us. We don't even consider what the kingdom of God might be in our lives. We may not even consider what God's purpose for having us on this earth might be. Do you know that God made you special? He ordained you before the foundation of the world. He knows every part of you inside and out, physically, spiritually, emotionally, socially. He knows all of you. And he has got a huge, monstrous plan for your life. But before he can live it out through you, you have to believe that he's the God of the impossible. You have to believe it. Elijah believed. But then we get to this last part, labeling treasure. Labeling treasure. Here's the principle. We aren't willing to pay the price. I want you to go back up in the passage and think about it this way. Before the fire of God could fall, and it did, it most certainly did, but before it could fall, the backslidden congregation was forced to relinquish the thing that was most valuable to them. Look at verse number 33. And he put the wood in order. I cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood and said, Fill four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it the third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar and he filled the trench also with water. There was very little water left in the entire area and Elijah wanted it thrown on the altar. He wanted them to take what was important to them and place it on the altar of God. This is quite a picture here. They had to take what was valuable, what was important, what was a treasure to them and lay it on the altar of God before God could work. It's the same way in our lives. Um, I don't know when you were a kid if you ever had a labeler. How many of you remember the labelers? Um, they're still around. They're, they're on TV infomercials now. Um, but you could label all your important stuff. And I remember the heyday for labelers. Um, they were almost as popular as iPhones are now. Almost. <laughs> not, not quite. In fact, if you owned a labeler, you may not want to admit it. Because from what I heard or from what I knew, the people who labeled things were considered kind of nerdish. Um, just saying. I don't, don't know. But... Um, but when I was 12 or 13, my grandmother gave me a little box of stickers, an orange box, and uh, they were Tony stickers. It just said my name. And it was so that I could take the sticker of my name and put it and go, go around and put it on everything that was important to me. And uh, so this is back, you know, in 1984. And uh, so you think of what's important back then, because um, your cassette player was important. Your clock radio, my postcard collection, um, my baseball card box, and all the important cool stuff that you people maybe didn't have the opportunity to have. Some of you kids never had a cassette player. Bless your heart, you missed out. Some of you kids don't even know what an eight-track tape is. Just pains me. Don't know the difference between a 45 or a 78. And I'm not talking about years, but anyway. But, you know, in our hearts, 
we do the same thing with stuff in our lives. We label it as a treasure. We label things in our life as owned by us. And yet God said, if we'll take the important things, what's most important to us, and pour it on the altar, He will consume it for His glory. Do you know that when the fire of God fell, as we read in verses 38 and 39, that the fire of God consumed everything? It licked up every drop of water on the altar. Every drop of water in the trench around the altar. Because God would be glorified. But before he can be glorified, they had to give what was most valuable to them. Our treatment of the altar of God shows what is actually important to us. Here's the deal. If you won't put it on the altar, then you've made it your idol. If you won't put it on the altar of the Holy Spirit in your life, you have made it your idol. You've made it more important than God in your life. And there might be someone today who needs to place something on the altar of God in your life. Maybe an addiction. Maybe a relationship that you've allowed to be bigger than God. Maybe some of your stuff. Maybe your career. Maybe bitterness. Maybe anger that you're holding on to. I don't know what it is. But I do know this. We will not see the power of God in our lives until we're willing to pay the price. Until we're willing to lay everything, including ourselves, on the altar of God. Paul said it this way to the Romans in Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And then he said, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How do you prove God's will for your life? You put yourself on the altar. How do you prove God's will for your life? You take the most valuable thing and you put it on the altar. You say, Pastor, our family time is Sunday night. You know, what if you brought your family time and put it on the altar and let God work? See, I believe the best family time you could ever have is right here in this room. The best family time you could have is probably better spent here than at a movie theater or a baseball game or sitting in front of your television or your Wii at home. But a lot of times we say, boy, that's our family time. We couldn't possibly make Sunday night church and learn how to raise our children for God. And so we miss out on huge opportunities because we take something and we value it according to our value system. I hope you understand. I'm not trying to belittle you. I'm not trying to be mean. But I hope you understand that your built-in value system is completely different than God's value system. You know what God values most? Surrender. He values you on the altar. He values everything that you've labeled as yours as His. It's all His. And when we say, God, that thing right there that's important to me, it's actually yours. I give it to you. You know what a lot of times God does? 
He says, okay, use it for my glory. And the things that we worry about, sometimes we, God, if I served you, if I dedicated my life, I'd lose this. I couldn't do that anymore. I wouldn't be able to do that. A lot of times God says, you know what? Here it is. Use it for your glory. But we hold on to it. We clutch it. They clutch the water. And Elijah said, pour it on the altar. Four barrels. And then four more barrels. And then four more barrels. So that the broken altar can be restored. So that the fire of God can fall. Would you bow in prayer? As you bow, I want to ask you this today. It could be that you're here without Jesus Christ. I don't know every person in this room. And perhaps you need Christ.